The following is an adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. This radio play podcast was produced by the Columbus Civic Theater with funding from the Greater Columbus Arts Council, the Columbus City Council, and Mayor Ginther, and the individual support from listeners like you. Please help support this and other projects that serve the community and public around you. Visit www.columbuscivic.org to see how you can help. Gatsby's notoriety was spread about by the hundreds who had accepted his hospitality. Contemporary legends such as the underground pipeline to Canada, attached themselves to him, and why these inventions were a source of satisfaction to James Gatz of North Dakota isn't easy to say. James Gatz, that was really, or at least legally, his name. He had changed it at the age of 17 when he saw Dan Cody's yacht drop anchor. It was James Gatz who had been loafing along the beach that afternoon, in a torn green jersey and a pair of canvas pants. But it was already Jay Gatsby, who borrowed a rowboat, pulled out to the yacht and informed Cody that a wind might catch him and break him up in half an hour. I suppose he'd had the name ready for a long time, even then. The truth was that Jay Gatsby, of West Egg, Long Island, sprang from his platonic conception of himself. Cody was fifty years old then, a product of Nevada's silver fields, of the Yukon, of every rush for metal since 75. The transactions in Montana copper that made him many times a millionaire found him coasting along all too hospitable shores for five years when he turned up as James Gatt's destiny at Little Girl Bay. To the young Gatt's, resting on his oars and looking up at the railed deck the yacht represented all the beauty and glamour in the world. He was employed in a vague personal capacity which lasted five years, during which the boat went three times around the continent. It might have lasted indefinitely, except for the fact on board one night in Boston, Dan Cody inhospitably died. I remember the portrait of him up in Gatsby's bedroom, a grey, florid man with a hard, empty face. He was left with his singularly appropriate education. The vague contour of Jay Gatsby had filled out to the substantiality of a man. For several weeks I didn't see him or hear his voice on the phone. Mostly I was in New York, trotting around with Jordan, until Gatsby's eventful party that weekend. Tom was evidently perturbed at Daisy's running around alone, for on the following Saturday night he came with her to Gatsby's party. Perhaps his presence gave the evening its peculiar quality of oppressiveness. It stands out in my memory from Gatsby's other parties that summer. There were the same people, or at least the same sort of people, the same profusion of champagne, the same many-colored, many-keyed commotion, but I felt an unpleasantness in the air, a pervading harshness that hadn't been there before. 
They arrived at twilight, and we, Gatsby, Daisy, Tom, and I, strolled out among the sparkling hundreds. Look around. I'm looking around. I'm having a marvelous time. You must see the faces of many people you've heard about. We don't go around very much. In fact, I was just thinking, I don't know a soul here. Perhaps you know that lady. She's lovely. The man bending over her is her director. He took them ceremoniously from group to group. Mrs. Buchanan and Mr. Buchanan. After an instant's hesitation, he added, The polo player. Oh, no, not me. But evidently the sound of it pleased Gatsby, for Tom remained the polo player for the rest of the evening. I've never met so many celebrities. I liked that man, what was his name, with the sort of blue nose? He's a small producer. Well, I liked him anyhow. I'd a little rather not be the polo player. I'd, I'd rather look at all these famous people in oblivion. Daisy and Gatsby danced. I remember being surprised by his graceful, conservative foxtrot. I'd never seen him dance before. Then they sauntered over to my house and sat on the steps for half an hour, while, at her request, I remained watchfully in the garden. In case there's a fire or a flood or any act of God. Do you mind if I eat with some people over here? A fellow's getting off some funny stuff. Go ahead. And if you want to take down any addresses, here's my little gold pencil. She looked around after a moment and told me the girl was common but pretty. And I knew that, except for the half hour she'd been alone with Gatsby, she wasn't having a good time. We were at a particularly tipsy table. That was my fault. Gatsby had been called to the phone, and I'd enjoyed these same people only two weeks before. But what had amused me then turned septic on the air now. How do you feel, Mrs. Baydecker? The girl addressed was trying, unsuccessfully, to slump against my shoulder. At this inquiry, she sat up and opened her eyes. What? A massive and lethargic woman, who had been urging Daisy to play golf with her at the local club tomorrow, spoke in Miss Bedecker's defense. Oh, she's all right now. When she's had five or six cocktails, she always starts screaming like that. I tell her she ought to leave it alone. I do leave it alone. We heard you yelling. So I said to Doc Civet here, there's somebody that needs your help, Doc. She's much obliged, I'm sure, but but you got her dress all wet when you stuck her head in the pool. Anything I hate is to get my head stuck in a pool. They almost drowned me once over in New Jersey. Then you ought to leave it alone. Speak for yourself. Your hand shakes. I won't let you operate on me. It was like that. Almost the last thing I remember was standing with Daisy and watching the moving picture director and his star. I like her. I think she's lovely. But the rest offended her. And inarguably, because it wasn't a gesture, but an emotion. She was appalled by West Egg. This unprecedented place that Broadway had begotten upon a Long Island fishing village. She saw something awful in the very simplicity she failed to understand. 
I sat on the front steps with them while they waited for their car. It was dark here in front. Only the bright door sent ten square feet of light volleying out into the soft black morning. Sometimes a shadow moved against the dressing room blind above, gave way to another shadow, an indefinite procession of shadows who rouged and powdered in an invisible glass. Who is this Gatsby, anyhow? Some big bootlegger? Where'd you hear that? I didn't hear it. I imagined it. A lot of these newly rich people are just big bootleggers, you know. Not Gatsby. Well, he certainly must have strained himself to get this menagerie together. At least they're more interesting than the people we know. (laughs) You didn't look so interested. Well, I was. Did you notice Daisy's face when that girl asked her to put her under a cold shower? Lots of people come who haven't been invited. That girl hadn't been invited. They simply force their way in, and he's too polite to object. I'd like to know who he is and what he does, and I think I'll make a point of finding out. I can tell you right now. He owned some drugstores, a lot of drugstores. He built them up himself. Her glance left me and sought the lighted top of the steps. After all, in the very casualness of Gatsby's party, there were romantic possibilities totally absent from her world. What was it up there calling her back inside? Good night, Nick. I stayed late that night. Gatsby asked me to wait until he was free, and I lingered in the garden until the inevitable swimming party had run up, chilled and exalted from the black beach until the lights were extinguished in the guest rooms overhead. His eyes were bright and tired. She didn't like it. Of course she did. She didn't like it. She didn't have a good time. He was silent, and I guessed at his unutterable depression. I feel far away from her. It's hard to make her understand. You mean about the dance? The dance? Old sport, the dance is unimportant. He wanted nothing less of Daisy than that she should go to Tom and say, I never loved you. After she had obliterated three years with that sentence, they could decide upon the more practical measures to be taken. One of them was that, after she was free, they were to go back to Louisville and be married from her house, just as if it were five years ago. And she doesn't understand. She used to be able to understand. We'd sit for hours. He broke off and began to walk up and down a desolate path of fruit rinds and discarded favors and crushed flowers. I wouldn't ask too much of her. You can't repeat the past. You can't repeat the past? Why, of course you can. He looked around him wildly, as if the past were lurking here in the shadow of his house, just out of reach of his hand. I'm going to fix everything just the way it was before. She'll see. He talked a lot about the past, and I gathered that he wanted to recover something. Some idea of himself, perhaps. That if he could once return to a certain starting place and go over it all slowly, he could find out what that thing was. It was when curiosity about Gatsby was at its highest that the lights in his house failed to go on one Saturday night. Only gradually did I become aware that the automobiles 
which turned expectantly into his drive, stayed for just a minute and then drove sulkingly away. Wondering if he were sick, I called. Going away? No, old sport. I hear you fired all your servants. I wanted somebody who wouldn't gossip. Daisy comes over quite often in the afternoons. Daisy herself telephoned. Would I come to lunch at her house tomorrow? Miss Baker would be there, and she seemed relieved when I agreed. Something was up. The next day was broiling, almost the last, certainly the warmest, of the summer. Through the hall of the Buchanan's house blew a faint wind, carrying the sound of the telephone bell out to Gatsby and me as we waited at the door. The butler called down the hall to us, needlessly indicating the direction. In this heat, every gesture was an affront to the common store of life. The room, shadowed well with awnings, was dark and cool. Daisy and Jordan lay upon an enormous couch like silver idols, weighing down their own white dresses against the singing breeze of the fans. <laughs> we can't move. <laughs> and Mr. Thomas Buchanan, the athlete, Simultaneously, I heard his voice, gruff, muffled, husky, at the hall telephone. Gatsby stood in the center of the crimson carpet and gazed around with his fascinated eyes. Daisy watched him and laughed, her sweet, exciting laugh. A tiny gust of powder rose from her bosom into the air. The rumor is that that's Tom's girl on the telephone. We were silent. The voice in the hall rose high with annoyance. Very well, then. I won't sell you the car at all. I'm under no obligations to you at all. And as for your bothering me about it at lunchtime, I won't stand that at all. Holding down the receiver. No, he's not. It's a bona fide deal. I happen to know all about it. Tom flung open the door, blocked out its space for a moment with his thick body, and hurried into the room. Mr. Gatsby! I'm glad to see you, sir. Nick. Make us a cold drink. As he left the room again, she got up and went over to Gatsby and pulled his face down, kissing him on the mouth. You know I love you. You forget there's a lady present. You kiss Nick, too. (laughs) What a low, vulgar girl. I don't care. Just as a freshly laundered nurse leading a little girl came into the room, Blessed precious, come to your own mother that loves you. The child, relinquished by the nurse, rushed across the room and rooted shyly into her mother's dress. The blessed precious, did mother get powder on your old yellowy hair? Stand up now and say howdy-do. Gatsby and I in turn leaned down and took the small, reluctant hand. Afterward, he kept looking at the child with surprise. I don't think he had ever really believed in its existence before. You dream, you. You absolute little dream. (laughs) Daisy sat back upon the couch. The nurse took a step forward and held out her hand. Goodbye, sweetheart. With a reluctant backward glance, the well-disciplined child was pulled out the door, just as Tom came back, preceding four gin rickies that clicked full of ice. Gatsby took up his drink. They certainly look cool. 
We drank in long, greedy swallows. I read somewhere that the sun's getting hotter every year. It seems that pretty soon the earth's going to fall into the sun. We had luncheon in the dining room, darkened, too, against the heat, and drank down nervous gaiety with the cold ale. What'll we do with ourselves this afternoon? And the day after that? And the next 30 years? Don't be morbid. Life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall. But it's so hot, and everything's so confused. Let's all go to town. Who wants to go to town? Ah, you look so cool. Their eyes met, and they stared together at each other, alone in space. With an effort, she glanced down at the table. You always look so cool. She had told him that she loved him, and Tom Buchanan saw. He was astounded. His mouth opened a little, and he looked at Gatsby, and then back at Daisy, as if he had just recognized her as someone he knew a long time ago. You resemble the advertisement of the man. You know, the advertisement of the man. All right. I'm perfectly willing to go to town. Come on, we're all going to town. He got up, his eyes still flashing between Gatsby and his wife. No one moved. Come on, what's the matter anyhow? If we're going to town, let's start. His hand, trembling with his effort at self-control, bore to his lips the last of his glass of ale. Are we just going to go? Like this? Aren't we going to let anyone smoke a cigarette first? Everybody smoked all through lunch. Oh, let's have fun. It's too hot to fuss. Have it your own way. Come on, Jordan. Daisy's voice got us to our feet and out onto the blazing gravel drive, shuffling the hot pebbles with our feet. A silver curve of the moon hovered already in the western sky. Gatsby started to speak, changed his mind, but not before Tom wheeled and faced him expectantly. Have you got your stables here? About a quarter of a mile down the road. Oh. I don't see the idea of going to town. Women get these notions in their heads. Shall we take anything to drink? I'll get some whiskey. Tom went inside. Gatsby turned to me rigidly. I can't say anything in his household, sport. She's got an indiscreet voice. It's full of, um... Her, her voice is full of money. That was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it. The symbol's song of it. High in a white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. Tom came out of the house wrapping a quart bottle in a towel, followed by Daisy and Jordan wearing small, tight hats of metallic cloth and carrying light capes over their arms. Shall we all go in my car? This is standard shift? Yes. Well, you take my coupe and let me drive your car to town. The suggestion was distasteful to Gatsby. I don't think there's much gas. Plenty of gas, and if it runs out, I can stop at a drugstore. You can buy anything at a drugstore nowadays. A pause followed this apparently pointless remark. Daisy looked at Tom frowning, and an indefinable expression, at once defiantly unfamiliar and vaguely recognizable, 
as if I had only heard it described in words, passed over Gatsby's face. Come on, Daisy, I'll take you in this circus wagon. He opened the door, but she moved out from the circle of his arm. You take Nick and Jordan. We'll follow you in the coop. She walked close to Gatsby, touching his coat with her hand. Jordan and Tom and I got into the front seat of Gatsby's car. Tom pushed the unfamiliar gears tentatively, and we shot off into the oppressive heat, leaving them out of sight behind. Did you see that? See what? He looked at me keenly, realizing that Jordan and I must have known all along. You think I'm pretty dumb, don't you? Perhaps I am, but I have uh, almost a second sight sometimes that tells me what to do. Maybe you don't believe that, but, but science... I made a small investigation of this fellow. I could have gone deeper if I'd known. Do you mean you've been to a medium? What medium? <laughs> About Gatsby. About Gatsby. No, I haven't. I said I've been making a small investigation of his past. And you found he was an Oxford man? An Oxford man? Like hell he is. He wears a pink suit. Nevertheless... He's an Oxford man. Oxford, New Mexico, or something like that. Listen, Tom, if you're such a snob, why did you invite him to lunch? Daisy invited him. She knew him before we were married. God knows where. We were all irritable now with the fading ale, and aware of it, we drove for a while in silence. Then, as Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's faded eyes came into sight down the road... I remembered Gatsby's caution about gasoline. We've got enough to get us to town. But there's a garage right here. I don't want to get stalled in this baking heat. Tom threw on both brakes impatiently. And we slid in an abrupt, dusty stop under Wilson's sign. After a moment, the proprietor emerged from the interior of his establishment and gazed hollow-eyed at the car. Let's have some gas. What do you think we stopped here for, to admire the view? I'm sick. I've been sick all day. What's the matter? I'm all run down. Well, shall I help myself? You sounded well enough on the phone. With an effort, Wilson left the shade in support of the doorway and, breathing hard, unscrewed the cap of the tank. In the sunlight, his face was green. I didn't mean to interrupt your lunch, but I need money pretty bad, and I was wondering what you were going to do with your old car. How do you like this one? I bought it last week. It's a nice yellow one. Like to buy it? Big chance. No, but I could make some money on the other. What do you want money for all of a sudden? I've been here too long. I want to get away. My wife and I want to go west. Your wife does. She's been talking about it for ten years, and now she's going whether she wants to or not. I'm going to get her away. The coupe flashed by us with a flurry of dust and the flash of a waving hand. What do I owe you? I just got wised up to something funny the last two days. That's why I want to get away. That's why I've been bothering you about the car. What do I owe you? Dollar twenty. 
The relentless beating heat was beginning to confuse me, and I had a bad moment there before I realized that, so far as his suspicions hadn't delighted on Tom, he had discovered that Myrtle had some sort of life apart from him in another world, and the shock had made him physically sick. I stared at him, and then at Tom, who had made a parallel discovery less than an hour before, and it occurred to me that there was no difference between men, in intelligence or race, so profound as the difference between the sick and the well. Wilson was so sick that he looked guilty, unforgivably guilty, as if he had just got some poor girl with child. I'll let you have that car. I'll send it over tomorrow afternoon. That locality was always vaguely disquieting, even in the broad glare of afternoon, and now I turned my head as though I had been warned of something behind. Over the ash sheeps, the giant eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg kept their vigil, but I perceived, after a moment, that other eyes were regarding us with peculiar intensity from less than twenty feet away. In one of the windows over the garage, the curtains had been moved aside a little, and Myrtle Wilson was peering down at the car. So engrossed was she that she had no consciousness of being observed, and one emotion after another crept into her face, like objects into a slowly developing picture. Her expression was curiously familiar. It was an expression I had often seen on women's faces, but on Myrtle Wilson's face it seemed purposeless and inexplicable until I realized that her eyes, wide with jealous terror, were fixed not on Tom, but on Jordan Baker, whom she took to be his wife. There is no confusion like the confusion of a simple mind, and as we drove away Tom was feeling the white hot whips of panic. His wife and his mistress, until an hour ago secure and inviolate, were slipping from his control. Instinct made him step on the accelerator with a double purpose of overtaking Daisy and leaving Wilson behind, and we sped along toward Astoria at fifty miles an hour until, among the spidery girders of the elevated, we came inside of the easy-going blue coupe. Those big movies around 50th Street are cool. I love New York on summer afternoons when everyone's away. There's something very sensuous about it. Overripe, as if all sorts of funny fruits were going to fall into your hands. The word sensuous had the effect of further disquieting Tom. But before he could invent a protest, the coupe came to a stop and Daisy signaled us to draw up alongside. Where are we going? How about the movies? It's so hot. You go. We'll ride around and meet you after. I can't argue about it here. You follow me to the south side of Central Park by the plaza. Several times he turned his head and looked back for their car. And if the traffic delayed them, he slowed up until they came into sight. I think he was afraid they would dart down a side street and out of his life forever. But they didn't. 
and we all took the less explicable step of engaging the parlor of a suite in the Plaza Hotel. The prolonged and tumultuous argument that ended by herding us into that room eludes me. The notion originated with Daisy's suggestion that we hire five bathrooms and take cold bath, and then assumed more tangible form as a place to have a mint julep. The room was large and stifling, and, though it was already four o'clock, opening the windows admitted only a gust of hot shrubbery from the park. Daisy went to the mirror and stood with her back to us, fixing her hair. It's a swell sweet. <laughs> Open another window. There aren't any more. Well, we'd better telephone for an axe. The thing to do is to forget about the heat. You make it ten times worse by crabbing about it. He unrolled the bottle of whiskey from the towel and put it on the table. Why not let her alone, old sport? You're the one that wanted to come to town. There was a moment of silence. The telephone book slipped from its nail and splashed to the floor, whereupon Jordan whispered, Excuse me, but this time no one laughed. That's a great expression of yours, isn't it? What is? All this old sport business. Where'd you pick that up? Now see here, Tom. If you're going to make personal remarks, I won't stay here a minute. Call up and order some ice for the mint julep. As Tom took up the receiver, the compressed heat exploded into sound, and we were listening to the pretentious chords of Mendelssohn's wedding march from the ballroom below. Imagine marrying anybody in this heat. Still, I was married in the middle of June. Louisville in June. Somebody fainted. Who was it fainted, Tom? A man named Biloxi. Blocks Biloxi. And he made boxes. That's a fact. And he was from Biloxi, Tennessee. They carried him into my house because we lived just two doors from the church. And he stayed there three weeks until Daddy told him he had to get out. The day after he left, Daddy died. There wasn't any connection. I used to know a Bill Biloxi from Memphis. That was his cousin. I knew his whole family history before he left. He gave me an aluminum putter that I use today. The music had died down now as the ceremony began, and now a long cheer floated in at the window, followed by a burst of jazz as the dancing began. We're getting old. If we were young, we'd rise and dance. Remember Biloxi. Where do you know him, Tom? Biloxi? I didn't know him. He was a friend of Daisy's. He was not. I'd never seen him before. He came down in the private car. Well, he said he knew you. He said he was raised in Louisville. Asa Bird brought him around at the last minute and asked if we had room for him. He was probably bumming his way home. He told me he was president of your class at Yale. Tom and I looked at each other blankly. Biloxi, first place, we didn't have any president. Gatsby's foot beat a short, restless tattoo and Tom eyed him. By the way, Mr. Gatsby, I understand you're an Oxford man. Not exactly. Oh, yes, I understand you went to Oxford. Yes, I went there. 
You must have gone there about the time Biloxi went to New Haven. Another pause. A waiter knocked and came in with crushed mint and ice, but the silence was unbroken by his thank you and the soft closing of the door. This tremendous detail was to be cleared up at last. I told you I went there. I heard you, but I'd like to know when. It was in 1919. I only stayed five months. That's why I can't really call myself an Oxford man. Tom glanced around to see if we mirrored his unbelief. But we were all looking at Gatsby. It was an opportunity they gave to some of the officers after the armistice. We could go to any of the universities in England or France. I wanted to get up and slap him on the back. I had one of those renewals of complete faith in him that I'd experienced before. Daisy rose, smiling faintly, and went to the table. Open the whiskey, Tom, and I'll make you a mint julep. Then you won't seem so stupid to yourself. Look at the mint. Wait a minute. I want to ask Mr. Gatsby one more question. Go on. What kind of a row are you trying to cause in my house anyhow? They were out in the open at last, and Gatsby was content. He isn't causing a row. You're causing a row. Please have a little self-control. Self-control. I suppose the latest thing is to sit back and let Mr. Nobody from Nowhere make love to your wife. Well, if that's the idea, you can count me out. Nowadays, people begin by sneering at family life and family institutions, and next they'll throw everything overboard and have intermarriage between black and white. Flushed with his impassioned gibberish, he saw himself standing alone on the last barrier of civilization. We're all white here. I know I'm not very popular. I don't give big parties. I suppose you've got to make your home into a pigsty in order to have any friends in the modern world. Angry as I was, as we all were, I was tempted to laugh whenever he opened his mouth. The transition from libertine to prig was so complete. I've got something to tell you, old sport. Please don't. Please, let's all go home. Why don't we all go home? That's a good idea. Come on, Tom. Nobody wants a drink. I want to know what Mr. Gatsby has to tell me. Your wife doesn't love you. She's never loved you. She loves me. You must be crazy. She never loved you, do you hear? She only married you because I was poor and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart, she never loved anyone except me. She never loved you, do you hear? She only married you because I was poor and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart, She never loved anyone except me. At this point, Jordan and I tried to go, but Tom and Gatsby insisted with competitive firmness that we remain, as though neither of them had anything to conceal, and it would be a privilege to partake vicariously of their emotions. Sit down, Daisy. What's been going on? I want to hear all about it. I told you what's been going on. Going on for five years and you don't know. You've been seeing this fellow for five years. Not seeing, no. We couldn't meet, but both of us loved each other all that time, old sport, and you didn't know. Oh, that's all? You're crazy. 
I can't speak about what happened five years ago because I didn't know Daisy then, and I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of that's a goddamned lie. Daisy loved me when she married me, and she loves me now. No. She does, though. The trouble is that sometimes she gets foolish ideas in her head, and she doesn't know what she's doing. And what's more, I love Daisy, too. Once in a while, I go off on a spree and make a fool of myself, but I always come back, and in my heart, I love her all the time. You're revolting. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. You're revolting. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. Gatsby walked over and stood beside her. Daisy, that's all over now. It doesn't matter anymore. Just tell him the truth, that you never loved him, and it's all wiped out forever. Why? How could I love him, possibly? You never loved him. She hesitated. Her eyes fell on Jordan and me with a sort of appeal, as though she realized at last what she was doing, as though she had never all along intended doing anything at all. But it was done now. It was too late. I never loved him. Not at Capiolani. No. From the ballroom beneath, muffled and suffocating chords were drifting up on hot waves of air. Not that day I carried you down from the punch bowl to keep your shoes dry. Daisy? Please don't. There, Jay. The hand she tried to light a cigarette with was trembling. Suddenly she threw the cigarette and the burning match on the carpet. Oh, you want too much. I love you now. Isn't that enough? I can't help what's past. I did love him once, but I loved you too. You loved me too? Even that's a lie. She didn't know you were alive. Why, there's things between Daisy and me that you'll never know. Things that neither of us can ever forget. The words seemed to bite physically into Gatsby. I want to speak to Daisy alone. She's all excited now. Even alone, I can't say I never loved Tom. It wouldn't be true. Of course it wouldn't. As if it mattered to you. Of course it matters. And I'm going to take better care of you from now on. You don't understand. You're not going to take care of her anymore. I'm not? Why's that? Daisy's leaving you. Nonsense. I am, though. She's not leaving me. Certainly not for a common swindler who'd have to steal the ring he put on her finger. I won't stand this. Oh, please, let's get out. Who are you, anyhow? You're one of that bunch that hangs around with Meyer Wolfsheim. That much I happen to know. I made a little investigation into your affairs, and I'll carry it further tomorrow. You can suit yourself about that, old sport. I found out what your drugstores were. He and this Wolfsheim bought up a lot of side street drugstores here and in Chicago and sold grain alcohol over the counter. That's one of his little stunts. I picked him for a bootlegger the first time I saw him, and I wasn't far wrong. What about it? I guess your friend Walter Chase wasn't too proud to come in on it. Then you left him in the lurch, didn't you? You let him go to jail for a month over in New Jersey. God, 
You ought to hear Walter on the subject of you. He came to us dead broke. He was very glad to pick up some money, old sport. Don't you call me old sport. Walter could have you up on the betting laws, too, but Wolfsheim scared him into shutting his mouth. That unfamiliar, yet recognizable look was back again in Gatsby's face. That drugstore business was just small change, but you've got something on now that Walter's afraid to tell me about. I glanced at Daisy, who was staring terrified between Gatsby and her husband. Then I turned back to Gatsby and was startled at his expression. He looked, and this is said in all contempt for the babbled slander of his garden, as if he had killed a man. He began to talk excitedly to Daisy, denying everything, defending his name against accusations that had not been made. But with every word, she was drawing further and further into herself. Please, Tom, I can't stand this anymore. Her frightened eyes told that whatever intentions, whatever courage she had had, were definitely gone. You two start on home, Daisy, in Mr. Gatsby's car. Go on. He won't annoy you. I think he realizes that his presumptuous little flirtation is over. And they were gone, without a word. After a moment, Tom got up and began wrapping the unopened bottle of whiskey in the towel. Want any of this stuff? Jordan? Nick? Nick? What? You want any? No. I just remembered that today is my birthday. I was 30. Before me stretched the portentous, menacing road of a new decade. This concludes part three of the Columbus Civic Theater's production of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. For upcoming installments, cast bios, ways to donate, and other information, please visit our website, www.columbuscivic.org.